0: Welcome to Share Public Health, the Midwestern Public Health Training Center's podcast connecting you to public health topics, issues, and colleagues throughout our region and the country, highlighting that we all share in public health. Thank you for tuning in to this 10-part series on health equity. Over the course of this series, we will discuss a broad range of topics connected to health equity. For additional resources and information, be sure to check the podcast notes or visit mphtc.org slash health equity.
1: Hello, my name is Derek Willis. I'm the director of Iowa's University Center for Excellence in Developmental Disabilities, and and pleased to be a part of this Health Equity podcast series. Today, we're gonna focus on how the presence of a disability or a special healthcare need can impact quality of life and access to healthcare. We'll identify some critical public health topics and share some best practices for serving individuals with special healthcare needs. Joining me today is Cheryl Jones, Pediatric Nurse Practitioner from the Child Health Specialty Clinics Regional Center in Ottomua, Iowa. Also, uh, we have Alejandra Escoto, a Child Health Specialty Clinic um, Title V Program Coordinator. We also have Mike Hanick, a Program Coordinator at the University of Iowa Center for Disabilities and Development, and Ann Crowdy, a Program Coordinator at the University of Iowa Center for Disabilities and Development. Um, let's begin by defining some key terms. The terms disability and special healthcare needs are not
2: exclusive Mike, um, can you tell us what is meant by disability? Absolutely, and thanks a lot for having me. This is really an exciting opportunity for all of us. So i like to share a couple of different definitions. Um, The first one being from the Americans with Disabilities Act of 1990. We often call that the ADA, and it's any long-term mental or physical impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activities, and that can be anything from hearing to seeing to learning. Uh, It can also uh, refer to performing daily tasks, things like doing housework, driving, accessing health care. Second definition I like to share is from the World Health Organization, and it's a bit more of a functional definition. And it talks about any condition that is impairing, limits activity or restricts participation. So when we talk about impairing, we're talking about actual impairments uh, in a person's body structure or function or perhaps it could also be mental functioning. So it could be an intellectual disability, could also be um, a mental illness. Um, In terms of activity limitation, this is similar to what we found in the ADA. So um, more of your hearing, seeing, walking, so forth. And then in terms of uh, participation restrictions, uh, again, this is social activities, recreational, uh, and once again, you know, we're, we're looking at, at health care. So similar definitions, but I would say that the World Health Organization is a bit more functional and really um, helps us to, to clarify what is meant by disability. Thanks, Derek, I'll turn it back to you.
1: Thank you, Mike. Um, Cheryl, I know you have served uh, children with special health care needs throughout your distinguished career. Can you help us understand the term um, special health care needs?
3: Well, thanks, Derek, and like Mike, I'm um, honored to be part of this discussion today. Uh, I work with Child Health Specialty Clinics, uh, which is the Title V program for children and youth with special healthcare needs in Iowa. We serve Iowa children uh, and youth, birth through 21 years of age, who, are, who have or are at risk of having a special healthcare need. And by has special healthcare need, we mean uh, children uh, or individuals with special health care needs actually require more than usual health and related services. These are children who need more than well child visits, routine immunizations, routine checkups. They they need more intense and oftentimes more frequent uh, health and related services. And uh, these can include chronic conditions such as asthma or diabetes. It can include behavioral mental health or developmental disorders, things like attention deficit disorder or anxiety. It can include neurodevelopmental disorders such as autism and also more complex medical conditions like spina bifida. So these are children uh, or individuals who um, have more complex health uh, and actually social needs than uh, individuals who do not have an associated uh, health or developmental uh, disability.
1: Thank you, Cheryl. Uh, I'd like to ask Anne to share some health disparities commonly experienced by individuals with disabilities and special health care needs.
4: Thanks, Derek. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, people with disabilities are more likely to smoke, be overweight and obese, be physically inactive than people without disabilities. Children with special health care needs are less likely to have a usual source of primary care, which is known as medical home. People with disabilities are also more likely to delay or skip preventative care for many reasons beyond the lack of an accessible environment that we typically think of. It can sometimes be difficult to access facilities at all. Even with the Americans with Disabilities Act, many buildings are not compliant with this and lack either ramps to get in a building or doorways that are wide enough. The World Health Organization reports that people with disabilities are more than twice as likely to report finding healthcare provider skills inadequate, four times more likely to report being treated badly, and nearly three times more likely to report being denied healthcare altogether. Clinics may not have accessible equipment like exam tables for pap smears or mammography machines, which means that people with disabilities are often diagnosed at later stages or not at all. This impacts health and quality of life.
1: Thanks, Ann. And I guess as we look at uh, the experiences of persons with disabilities in the U.S. today, I think it's important that we look back at disability history or the progression of Disability rights movement. Um, can we take a few minutes to talk about the history of of treatment of people with disabilities? and And maybe Mike, could you could you start us off with that?
2: Yeah, I'll start off, and then Cheryl, I, I really invite you to jump in, and really anyone. This is this is meant to be a dialogue, and, and we it's um, it's not necessarily the most pleasant subject. That uh, you know, we I do think we need to uh, for those that may be unfamiliar with disability. We need to look back, and and there actually is documentation of treatment and attitudes for people with disabilities back in BC, but I think for purposes of uh, this podcast, we're gonna start in the mid-1800s in the United States when um, large institutions, uh, uh, different shapes and sizes, began to be built to warehouse people with disabilities. Um, Along with that came terminology such as imbecile insane idiot Um, we're doing this podcast from iowa city and i've recently gotten involved with a project where they're really trying to understand the history of a place that at one time was called the johnson county poor farm it's out on the west end of, of town and i had the chance to go visit and from about 1860 to 1880 people were actually housed in these jail cell type structures the uh, people who were uh, eventually moved from those structures into uh, other types of facilities and just to give you a sense of what happened and what how uh, primitive and how disgusting these places were they were later used for livestock so you know we can see how people with with disabilities were viewed Um, in the early 1900s we began to see something another movement come into being, and that was called the eugenics movement. This was an attempt to really create a a master race, a cream of the crop kind of a thing, and people with disabilities in one Indiana law were referred to as confirmed idiots and imbeciles. Uh, There was a Supreme Court ruling on this case, and I'm going to read it, just because I, I, I want people to see how blatant this, these attitudes were. It was a ruling issued by Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes and in part it read, it is better for all the world if instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crime or to let them starve for their imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind Three generations of imbeciles are enough. So things slowly, fortunately, began to change. And uh, with the return of vets after World War I, there was uh, a move to provide rehabilitation. And for the first time in history, funds were set aside to support individuals with disabilities, although that term was not used at the time, to go, uh, to go back to work. And so in the very early 1920s, we had funding for that purpose and, and that eventually uh, became our the program that we now know as Vocational Rehabilitation. The Social Security Act which was signed by FDR in 1935 also uh, was a step in the right direction because it did provide a means ultimately for some people who just are not able to work part-time or full-time because of their disability to have access to some funds. So. Along with the history, Derek, you mentioned something called the disability rights movement. And many people today still, you know, you may have heard of civil rights, women's rights. Not a lot of people are familiar with the topic of disability rights or the term disability rights movement. But it definitely has existed and it continues to exist. I like to think of it, the first the first uh, real move in that direction was the organized blindness movement. Jacobus Tenbrook in the early 1920s uh, formed an organization called the California Council of the Blind, which later, later became the National Federation of the Blind. And like all organizations in this, this type of movement, it was the first organization that was really, that was led by the individuals who were the disenfranchised group. In this case, people who are blind. So moving on for a few years into the early 1930s, we see another organization forming. It was called the League for the Handicapped, and yes, in in today's terminology, that wouldn't be accepted, but keep in mind that was over 70 years ago. And this was an organization, primarily of people with physical disabilities who staged a lengthy protest, a nine-day sit-in, because uh, the WPA, the Works Progress Administration, designated uh the people with disabilities request for employment as ph physically handicapped so they were they were singled out immediately and that obviously led to some led to discrimination Uh, they're moving forward into the 50s events and people with disabilities began something called the barrier-free movement establishing standards for uh, barrier-free buildings which laid the groundwork for the Rehab Act and the ADA, which we're gonna talk about a little bit more uh, shortly. So the last three quarters of a century has really seen a boom in this area of the disability rights movement. And Cheryl, I'm gonna invite you um, to to chime in here. Um, There were a couple of of organizations that all of us, I guess we kind of take for granted if if we've been uh, involved with, disability rights or the disability movement at all. And those are the ARC, formerly the Association of Retarded Citizens, and Special Olympics. Cheryl, I know you've worked in the field for a while, and as we prepared for this, you you had some thoughts about the importance of of groups like the ARC getting started at a time when people with disabilities and their families really didn't have access to a lot of support. Yeah,
3: thank you, Mike. I've been a nurse for 50 years and a nurse practitioner for 42 years. I've worked with individuals with special needs most of much of my career. I've been in this regional center for 40 some years. And I will tell you when I first uh, started uh, and the way I was educated, it was like if a child had a specific health problem, you just tell the family what to do. You're the expert and this is where you go. Well, I had had different experiences I, I was sharing with this group, I had a cousin who had a severe disability, was unable to speak. She could walk, but only with assistance. Um, and my aunt and uncle being actively involved in Ark of Iowa back in the uh, late 50s, early 60s, all they wanted was for their daughter to be able to go to school. And that wasn't allowed. A child with that degree of disability could not go to school. My mom helped take care of her at home, but my aunt and uncle fought for that and finally got that her she never got to go to school but when other children were able to, it was such a victory for them. so I see Ark of Iowa I mean, that's been my experience with the state art uh, has been um, so so positive. The other thing, uh, and I know, Mike, you're gonna talk some about this, was Olmstead. Um, the Olmstead ruling and how it went about in Iowa. You know, it was to, to ensure that folks would be able to, um, to, to have access to services in their community, uh, not what you were talking about with institutions and things. And we were fortunate in Iowa in early, in early 2000, Governor Vilsack designated the Iowa Department of Human Services as a lead agency to respond to Olmstead. And then in 2003, he existed, ex, uh, issued an executive order saying Iowa state agencies have to identify barriers to community living posed by their policies and programs and develop plans to remove them. So those were important things. Now, You know, are there still issues? Of course, there are still some issues, but I do, I do see movement. Um, We're not there yet, but there's been movement. And then, of course, the other big one was the um, for uh, for children was IDEA, which Mike will talk a little bit about too. But after 40 some years in the field, I can see the difference for children now with special needs in these types of programs compared to what they were. When I first started in this field back in the in the uh, early 70s.
2: Well, thank you, Cheryl. And you know I, that is a perfect segue because you know, just going back and touching briefly on the history, because I think Olmsted yours, and, and idea are so important and really set the stage for people having community-based options. Um, you know, one other thing I did want to mention briefly was the establishment of a Center for Independent Living. The uh, first one was, uh, begun in 1972. It was uh, formed by Ed Roberts, an individual polio survivor who actually was in an iron lung. And uh, he had been deemed too disabled to go to college and then he was deemed too disabled to go to work. And he ended up starting an independent living center, uh, which was led, uh, or should say governed and staffed by a majority of people with disabilities and that, that, to this day, uh, that is a requirement of these organizations, they're community-based, they are not places where people go to live, but they provide a variety of, of services in the community, chief among them being advocacy and this whole idea of moving away from the medical model in which the person with disabilities was blamed for inaccessibility uh, and, and the burden was on the person with a disability and now with this with the establishment of independent living centers There was really a move toward making the environment more accountable and quick on the heels of that uh, Was the rehab act of 73 uh, Which made it illegal for state? Um, agencies or federal agencies public universities um, and other public institutions receiving any sort of federal funding uh, to discriminate against people with disabilities. So uh, we had that going on, and, that, and as Cheryl mentioned, the what at first was called the Education for All Handicapped Act, that eventually uh, was renamed Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, which required free and public, free and appropriate public education uh, for all. So we see in the '70s all of these moves forward for uh, leading to things like the Olmstead decision. Uh, I'd like to mention one more of of these precursors and it it actually happened in 1983 and it was the establishment of the Home and Community-Based Services or HCBS program. Uh, This actually allows states uh, to access a waiver of Medicaid rules that govern where people live, so even if somebody might be identified as needing institutional care, uh, they can apply for a waiver, meaning that they're able to access those services in, in their home. And there is quite an Iowa connection with that, and that, that uh, <clears throat> Julie Beckett was a leader in, in uh, reaching out to her legislators uh, and other Congress people, her, her daughter Katie had significant physical disability and because services were not available in the community and she could not access funding, at least for services in the community, Katie lived in the hospital, I think, until about age three. So um, that was unacceptable Unacceptable to the Becketts and uh, the initial physical, uh, the waiver was, uh, eventually, the name was changed, but we all, it's often still referred to as the Katie Beckett waiver. So uh, that that is the Iowa connection. And Cheryl, I don't know. Do you have any other comments about HCBS in terms of
3: your work in in rural Iowa and as a nurse and how that's impacted uh, the people that you've served and the families that you've served? Well, the home and community-based waiver services are are extremely important. I mean, there's more now. There's a number of waivers. Those can apply to children with. Are individuals with intellectual disabilities. There's the um, the health related ones. There's also a children's mental health waiver. Um, so there are a number of things which provide resources for these families. But one of the big things that all of these waivers can help provide is respite for families. And as we talk more about needs, uh, respite is such an important uh, important thing. Um, so the the H the home and community based service waivers have been uh, an extremely uh, beneficial resource for families um, and for individuals with special needs. Now, are they at, are they available to everybody? And are they as available as they should be? No, the waiting list in Iowa to get on a waiver if you newly apply is about 18 months to two years. So there's a huge demand for it. But for those individuals who can access it, it's an incredible resource.
2: It certainly is. I would be remiss if I also did not mention the Americans with Disabilities Act that was signed into law in 1990. Uh, Most of us refer to it as the Civil Rights Landmark Legislation for People with Disabilities and covered basic areas of employment, public services, public accommodations, and uh, telecommunications. Uh, We're getting ready to celebrate 30 years of the ADA, and it has made a huge difference in our country today. Before we we move on to another topic, I, I do think Cheryl, you mentioned that you know, we still things aren't perfect. We still have to watch. You know, we're certainly in a political environment that uh, there have been some some moves to weaken some of the programs and laws, whether it be Olmstead, the ADA. Um, we're just at, at the time of this podcast, unfortunately, reading about the situation uh, at the Glenwood Resource Center uh, out in western Iowa, where. Uh, it appears that there, there are some claims that are being uh, reviewed by the Department of Justice now on, on human experimentation. So we cannot just let our guard down, those of us that are in the movement, and say, well, it's all better because we're still, we're still working and, and there are still issues that we do need to deal with. But I'm certainly glad that we're not uh, warehousing people in jails
1: in the way that was done back in the, the 1860s. Well, thanks, Mike, and, and thank you, too, Cheryl, for sharing some personal experiences, but also some of the history. Uh, we've, we've come a long ways, and as you both have said, we, we do have a long ways to go. Um, and it's so important that we know the history as we continue to fight and, and work for the civil rights of people with disabilities. Thank you again. Now I'm gonna shift a little bit and take a little time to um, talk about the importance of using respectful, an appropriate language when talking with or about people with disabilities and special health care needs. Mike, could you kind of talk a little bit about um, this
2: subject called "people first language"? Uh, sure, Gary. Thanks.
1: Uh,
2: this is uh, this is a very interesting topic. As a person who's lived with a disability since birth, um, I, I was exposed to it as as a, as a young adult, and that was the idea that what that a person Uh, is not their disability. And so, you know, back in the day, you'd hear terms like a down kid, a downs kid, or a wheelchair-bound person, or or whatever. And so the the term retarded, unfortunately, was, was often used. And people just didn't even know. Crazy, birth defects, all kinds of negative terminology. And so there has really been a move within the disability community to replace that language with uh, using the person first so a person who is blind or uh, a person who uses a wheelchair a person who has a physical disability a person with an intellectual disability what's very interesting to me now is that there is as happens in any movement there is a shift again and that there are a number of groups who really do want to put their identity first we have a disabled student group on campus, and many of them, when they write about themselves or their activity, put the word disabled first. And that is intentional because they they see that as such a strong part of their identity and they are proud of it. Um, We often used to say people with autism, and within the autism community, there's been a pushback to that and to the point where people often will say autistic adults or even autistics. Uh, Bottom line is, is to respect the preferences of the individual, and if you're you're not sure, just ask, and and we'll tell you, Um, because it is going to be different for different uh, people. Cheryl, did you have anything else to add on that topic?
3: No, I I think, again, uh, um, when you work with individuals with special needs or individuals with disabilities, um, anything, asking people what is your preference, and they'll, they'll let you know, as you said, Mike, uh, they'll tell you how they want to do that. But I do think um, that, for example, when I first started working for Child Health Specialty Clinics, we were called State Services for Crippled Children. That was the name of our organization. Now, that's a terminology we would never use now. Um, so I think that there's been more sensitivity among providers about how we refer to individuals um, uh in a more, uh, in, a, in a less derogatory way. But again, as you said, the mood is shifting, and some groups are wanting to re- be referred more in the context of uh, of the, the disability or special needs. So, asking folks what they wanna want to be uh, called, and and for children, parents will tell you too how they want their child referred to. So it's basically talking to them and seeing what they wanna what they see.
1: So I'd like to shift a little bit, um, and, and knowing that Ann has uh, a background in public health, I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the public health issues. And, and you mentioned earlier that one health disparity among people with disabilities is that they are generally less physically active than their non-disabled peers. And so I was wondering if you could talk about some of the reasons Uh, for that, along with some exciting initiatives going on to create inclusive recreation opportunities.
4: Sure, Derek. The CDC states that nearly half of people with disabilities nationwide get little to no physical activity in any given week. Some barriers to physical activity could be lack of transportation, cost of activities, gym and fitness centers that are not equipped or trained to serve people with disabilities, and caregivers that might be so overprotective that they do not allow someone with a disability to take the risks and make choices that people without disabilities are allowed to do every day. This limits health and quality of life, but things are changing, though. A few examples. The Iowa University Center for Excellence on Developmental Disabilities, known as the UCEDD, is also awarding many grants to community-based organizations that want to implement inclusive and sustainable recreation programs in their communities. We did this last year as well and a few of the examples of programs or projects that organizations pursued were things like pers- offering personal training for people with disabilities and that includes training staff on how to adapt their approaches to serve people with both physical and um, intellectual disabilities, and then also providing the personal training services themselves. And another example was the city of Fort Dodge, in combination or partnership with Facing Autism, trained all of their city lifeguards in disability inclusion and etiquette, and they also purchased adaptive equipment for things like T-ball, And um, they did a whole bunch of little events like they purchased adaptive musical instruments to loan out to schools so that children with disabilities could participate in music class with their peers. And just imagine how rewarding it is to see children able to participate with their peers, finally. Um, In another example, the Girls on the Run program is implementing an evidence-based and adaptive curriculum that allows girls with disabilities to participate with their peers. It includes things like training for coaches and community health inclusion assessments in the community and adaptations for girls. The community health inclusion index assessment can identify areas for improvement in the community. Small changes can really open doors for people with disabilities to participate and these changes will often make it easier for those without disabilities to participate as well.
1: Well, it's so, so great to hear about some of the projects. And, and, and you mentioned the quality of life, and I'd like to ask Cheryl and Alejandra to kind of talk about uh, some of the challenges that families face when caring for loved ones with special health care needs and, and, and how that impacts the quality of life as well.
5: So thank you, Derek. So to answer your question, I wanted to share a little bit of information from a project that Child Health Specialty Clinics is working on. So for the past year, Child Health Specialty Clinics has been working in conjunction with the Iowa Department of Public Health to conduct a needs assessment that uses systematic methods to determine the greatest needs for the population of children with special health care needs throughout Iowa. This data and information collection process has been going on for about a year and has allowed us as an organization to better understand how the current systems of care are impacting children and youth with special health care needs and what can be done to improve these systems. To better understand the challenges that families are facing um, with caring for loved ones with special health care needs, we facilitated focus groups with Child Health Specialty Clinic patients, families of children and youth with special health care needs that are currently not utilizing our services and underrepresented groups throughout Iowa. We also conducted interviews with family leaders throughout the state to better understand how systems are impacting families with special health care needs. So, what we found from the focus groups and family leader interviews is that Iowa, Iowans are facing challenges in identifying a medical home that is capable of providing the care that fits the needs of their children with special health care needs. Participants said that they experienced barriers in receiving timely referrals to specialists due to a lack of available provi- providers financial constraints, and challenges with transportation. The focus groups and interviews also revealed that they experience barriers with waiver services as they often lack the flexibility that many families need, such as a lack of flexibility in the structure of the home visiting programs, shifting power dynamics during advocacy situations, especially when it comes to navigating the patient-family relationship, and the limited number of resources available in a family's native language. Families also express that they are in desperate need for more family support, such as access to high-quality and reliable respite care and assistance navigating the complex healthcare system. So while those are some of the main findings from our needs assessment, Cheryl, do you have anything that you want to add about what you've seen in your practice?
3: Thank you, Alejandra. And actually, as a provider, a clinician in the clinic, it's always a little reassuring when focus groups and studies like this support what you've been seeing in your day-to-day interaction with families. And what I've learned over the years in working with children and youth with special healthcare needs, what we've heard from their families, they face lots of challenges. One of them is finding a diagnosis. We see a lot of children in our clinic who come here because the family knows something's not right, but nobody's figured out what it is. Or some families will come and say, I've been saying for a long time, something's not right, but nobody listens. And so, Finding that diagnosis can be daunting and frankly for some families can take years. Parents may feel guilt or they ask themselves, and I have had them ask me this, is it something I did, is something I didn't do that caused this? And so families are dealing sometimes with a lot of, of emotions about did they contribute to their child's special needs. The other thing that we forget, and, and uh, we talked a little bit about this. But what we so take for granted, getting in and out of bed, getting in and out of a chair, eating, bathing, brushing our teeth, for some of these children with significant disabilities, the caretakers are responsible for all of this. So they are facing these types of needs. And for all of us who have had children, you know as your child gets older, they take on more and more responsibility for for, for what they do for their care. For some children with significant disabilities, um, they don't move on to those uh, more increased uh, um, autonomy in this. The other thing we sometimes forget about uh, challenges for families is the needs of the siblings without a, a special need or without a disability. And these kids can take back seat sometimes to the needs of the child with a disability because necessarily some of these children have very serious health uh, and developmental issues. and so, Their needs are are front and center, and sometimes the siblings um, kind of take second, uh, take back seat to this. Also, some of these children um, help with child care or caretaking very young. But one of the things that's impressed me about the siblings of the children I see with special needs is how caring they are for their sibling with a special need. And the other phenomenon I've seen, because I've been following some of these kids up through adult life, is how many of these siblings go into the helping professions. They go into medicine, they go into nursing, they go into social work, they go into therapy. They are helping. They often go in and it's it's an impressive thing I've seen. One of the other phenomena I've seen with some of these families is the parents focus very much on the health and well-being of their child, but they don't take real good care of themselves. And so some of them have not had the kind of health care they should have either, so they tend not to focus on their own health. These families can experience social isolation. I think it's getting better over the years that we've done more and more effort to integrate children and families with special needs into the community, but can still be an issue. And so isolation can be a problem um, where uh, daycare, finding daycare for kids with special needs uh, so that families can even go out for dinner together can be problematic. And the challenges of raising children with special needs can strengthen or tear down the relationships, including extended family and the immediate family. So those are some struggles that sometimes occur. The other issue for these families is financial. Um, many of these families have significant financial needs. In one study, about 30% of families of children with special health care needs found that the parent who is the primary caretaker for the child either had to reduce their work hours or stop working completely to care for the child. And I see this phenomenon a lot in the families I serve. Um, people who have to either cut down employment or they say, I, I just can't do it. The other thing we see is families who are on um, the, the FIP program, the, the Medicaid program, uh, where uh, they they have to work or they have to be looking for a job and if you've got a child with special needs that can present a lot of challenges and so we are ending up writing uh letters to the uh to the promise job program saying this child has serious health problems developmental problems this mom or this dad needs to be available but that can be a real challenge too and then finally is the challenges they see with insurance um many children uh, with special needs end up, if not as the primary carrier uh, payer, Medicaid is a secondary payer. And the um, challenges of what insurance will or won't pay for for these families, prior authorizations are required for so many things. So these are some of the struggles I see. And frankly, they're, uh, Leandra, they're pretty consistent with what what we've observed here in our clinic with what the families are telling you. Um, But the other big, big need that they say is we need help navigating this system. It is complex. It's confusing. We don't know how to do it. And so in our organization, um, we are blessed to have family navigators in each of our regional centers. These are parents of children with special health care needs who can help us help the families navigate this system. Um, so, but those are some of the things we've seen uh, over the years in terms of some of the challenges that families of children and youth with special needs face.
1: Alejandra and, and Cheryl, thank you for uh, helping us understand some of the quality of life issues and some of the things that our families do experience. Um, I also am grateful for the needs assessment because that really kind of helps us as practitioners know where the the true needs of families and and individuals with lived experiences. And so, and I know through some of our work, we've learned that transition uh, is a major issue as well. And I would wonder if you could speak a little bit about transition, particularly around the transition from pediatric to adult healthcare, um, as it seems to be a hot topic across the country and here in the state of Iowa as well. So if you could talk about some
3: of those factors that make this such a big challenge, Alejandra and Cheryl. Okay, thank you, Derek. And I'll ask Alejandra to speak to to this. But transition is actually one of the priorities we have, uh, one of our Title V priorities um, in terms of transition of children from the pediatric to the adult care system, children and youth with special needs. Now, there's a big difference between the pediatric system and the adult care system, uh, if you will. it's what what healthcare transition is, it's the process of changing from a pediatric to an adult model of healthcare. And there's significant differences between those two models. In pediatric care, it's family oriented and relies on significant parental involvement. Now that involvement can get less as the child gets older, especially if they are a normally developing, a typically developing child, doesn't have a lot of medical issues, that the child assumes more and more responsibility. But for children with special health care needs, that isn't always the case. Um, adult care is more patient-specific and requires autonomous, independent skills of patients. For example, as an adult, my, uh, you know, we call our healthcare provider ourselves, make the appointment, say, I'm, you know, I need to be seen, I need my flu shot, I need this. In pediatrics, that type of care is taken care of typically by the parent. Healthcare transition is important for all youth, regardless of whether they have a health, special healthcare need or not, so that they can maximize lifetime functioning and well being and really know how to appropriately utilize the healthcare system. Uh, and it's widely accepted that well-timed transition from child to adult healthcare system is specific for each person. Everybody's different, and so you have to modify that. But the process of transitioning care of adolescents with special healthcare needs is, uh, is a priority that we're seeing, and it also presents some challenges. Um, core elements of healthcare transition for children and youth with, is, is with special needs include several things. One is that we need to ensure that all young people with special health care needs have an identified healthcare care professional who attends to the unique challenges of transition and the needs of those uh, children. And I think it was Anne who talked about the concept of a medical home. This is somewhere where a child, um, uh, an individual goes, where that place, that provider can uh, really help to coordinate and see these are your needs and help you plan for that transition. Um, We need a system that knows what the core knowledge and skills required to provide developmentally appropriate healthcare transition services are. And it's not something that we, you know, we all have and know. And frankly, we're just now starting to get more training and education in that area. But what are the things we need to think about when people are, um, Uh, looking at needing to train, uh, to transfer to adult care. And there are some places that are looking at even certification requirements for primary care providers, for physicians, for nurse practitioners, for physician assistants to help us learn that. Certainly was nothing that was ever taught to me in my basic uh, nursing education. Um, Over the years, I've gone to different programs to learn this, but I think there's a more of an effort now to integrate that into basic uh, healthcare trainings. The other important thing, and parents have said forever, um, maintain an up to date medical summary that is portable and accessible. Parents talk all the time about how many times they've had to give their life story or the child's life story. So, looking at the ability to have a portable and accessible Um, medical summary that can be shared among the various providers. Now with the implementation of electronic health records um, we may have more opportunities to do that in a more electronic way but we still aren't quite there yet. The other thing is development of an up-to-date and uh, detailed written uh, transition plan in collaboration with the young people and their families. What are the needs? What are the things you want to work on for transition? And then uh, working with the child and the family on doing that. The other thing, and Ann mentioned this as an issue for individuals with disabilities, that they often don't get the required regular preventive and preventive care. And we see that with individuals with children with special health care needs. Sometimes the routine type of health maintenance that they should get is missed because they're seeing the cardiologists and the neurologists and the orthopedists and whatever, but nobody putting it all together. So we need to ensure that the same standards for primary and preventive health care are applied to adolescents with special health care needs as are with other uh, individuals in the same holds true for adults when they move into the adult system. And then we need to ensure that affordable, comprehensive and continuous health insurance is available to young people with chronic health conditions throughout adolescence and adulthood. And, Alejandra, I don't know if there were any comments regarding this transition issue when you did some of the survey of families or if you have anything uh, to to add to this, but um, certainly those are some of the things we see as we look at transition.
5: Yeah, and to add some of the findings from the needs assessment, um, transition to adult healthcare was by far one of the top three things that our key stakeholders identified as a need in Iowa, um, and especially when it comes to finding providers in their areas, and most of the time in rural areas, that are able to properly care for their now youth um, or young adult with special healthcare needs, and that's something that people are really struggling to find, um, but some of the core elements that you have, you know, as an organization child health specialty clinics has tried to come up with some resources that can help clinicians in in families in this transition such as transition um, quick guides that can give an overview on what um, a youth with special health care needs may need to think about as they transition into the adult system of care.
3: In, in child health specialty clinics um, we do we do st- uh, stress the importance of transition. And we have guidelines for different ages. What do you do at different ages? It comes from God transition, but we do use it in child health specialty clinics. We start the process at age 12. And people say, 12, my goodness. Um, but we're introducing the concept that we are going to be talking with you and y- and your parents over the next several years about things we need to be thinking about as your child gets toward an adult at age 18. So at age 12, we introduce the concept. At age 14, we start to really talk about what are some of the things that we need to do. And that includes the uh, some questionnaires we have for the child or the adolescent and the family to say, what are some things you want to work on? And I had a, a child in the other day, he's 14, and he said, I want to learn more about my medicines. And I want to know what I should do in an emergency. So we're going to work on some of those things. And in six months, when he comes back, we're going to say, how's it going? How's it working? At age 16, it's recommended that um, we prepare the the child and the parents for adult approach to care and discuss preferences and timing for transfer to adult health care. A lot of families are getting nervous about how long will my pediatrician see me? And so what we talk to them about is around the age of 17 or 18, talk to your pediatrician if that's who you're seeing, because pediatricians typically will follow kids into their 20s, and then they say, we need to transition. If you're, if you're following with a family practitioner, that's, they'll continue to follow you. But those are some things. By 18, we talk about transitioning to those adult providers. And by between 18 and 22, really the total transfer of care to an adult medical home and specialist with that transfer information I talked about, the medical uh, record, the transition plan, those types of things. Now, this timetable works well for individuals, um, assuming that the adolescent will assume partial or total responsibility for their healthcare. Now, we have a number of children that we follow in our clinic. This is not the case. They are going to require significant care from others um, for the rest of their lives. And so for those with severe developed disabilities or health care concerns, they present different challenges as they um, age into the adult, into adulthood. And I actually discussed this with our clinic family ma- navigator, who is the parent of a, uh, a young woman in her 20s now. We followed her in our clinic as, until she aged out of our services. To talk with her, what are some of the issues that you deal with as a parent of a child with significant disabilities where the child taking over their care is not the option. And so some of the things she talks about was identifying as an appropriate adult provider who is who really is comfortable in dealing with an individual with this degree of disability. And she said that's been a real struggle. Now, to, we are in a rural area here, and so the issue of finding uh, qualified providers or people who are uh, willing to do this in rural Iowa is tough, and, um, uh, but that's a concern. The other thing she said that you have to be concerned about with children with the severe disabilities is guardianship. And at age 18, parents need to seek guardianship or some other legal mechanism for their child. And for many families, we say, you've got to be kidding me. This is, I'm the parent, what do you mean I have to get guardianship? Well, at 18, they're still considered an adult. So we have to, do, to look at uh, obtaining guardianship. This is not an, an inexpensive process. And um, some of our families are looking at uh, hundreds, five, thousand, $500 to $1,000 for, uh, for lawyer fees. And if the child can't speak, which was the case with our family navigators, they had to have a guardian ad litem also who represented their daughter. So those are some of the issues that they, that they need to look at. Um, the other thing she said, uh, that they have to really look at is financial planning for the care, living expenses, living arrangements of the individual, and what do you do if something happens to the parent um, in, in case of either the parent becoming uh, fin- uh, incapacitated or, God forbid, would pass away. And she said this is a constant worry of, of parents with children with this degree of disability. Um, she said that they have a letter of an intent about who should be taking care of their daughter, if anything would happen to either of them uh, or both of them in an emergency situation. And they also have a very uh, well uh, written out care plan so that anybody who comes in knows how to take care of their daughter. And then the other thing she said is uh, respite services. And as difficult as this is in the child population, it gets probably even more challenging as an adult. So those are some of the things that she identified as a parent of a child with significant disabilities, where the option of the child taking responsibility for their care isn't there. So she said what those families need is parent information, support, uh, and education on what do we do in planning for the future of this child who will remain Um, somebody will be happy taking care of that child for the remainder of their life.
1: Well, thank you, Cheryl and Alejandra, and and, and everybody who has provided information. I think what we have done is provided a wealth of information related to disabilities, looking at history, looking at services and opportunities provided, uh, looking at healthcare and how we respond to that. Um, Just great information, and and, uh, I appreciate all of you uh, knowing that we have to wrap this up, though, and and knowing that this podcast is coming to an end, I, I'd like to ask each of you to share just one practical tip, uh, which which our listeners can start to implement today.
2: Thanks, sir. I gave a lot of thought to this topic, and I think that one practical suggestion I would have is when you come into contact with the person with a disability think about that individual as a person and not their disability. And remember that we, people with disabilities, have the same dreams and aspirations and challenges and wishes and achievements that that anyone else does. Thanks, Mike. Cheryl?
3: Thank you, Derek, and thank you for the opportunity to be part of this discussion today. For me, it's um, work in partnership with children and youth with special health care needs and their families, and the delivery of either your health care services or whatever services it is that you're doing. Now, working in partnership with families, it changes how you practice as a provider. And I'm—I will guarantee you, you will find it one of the most rewarding experiences you'll ever have—is working in partnership with families.
1: Thanks, girl. And.
3: My
4: practical tip would be to conduct a community health inclusion index assessment in your community, which is available through the National Center on Health, Physical Activity, and Disability. Don't get overwhelmed with the results. Implement what you can and know that anything helps, with the goal of making bigger changes over the long term.
1: Thanks, Raiden. Ariandra?
5: So for my tip, I'd like to go back to a topic that Mike and Cheryl discussed, which was language. Um, and language can be a really powerful tool, and it can either be a tool of oppression or empowerment. So I would take the time to um, understand how people with disabilities or special health care needs self-identify and then change your language based on those preferences.
1: And as we close, I would just like to say thank you. Thank you to uh, all the work that you do and all the information that you have provided. This has been a great podcast. And I look forward to uh, hearing more in this health equity podcast series.
0: Thank you for joining us today. Special thanks to Rima Afifi, Ann Crotty, Alejandro Escoto, Paul Gilbert, Casey Ginn, Mike Honig, Kathleen May, Felicia Pieper, Melissa Richland, Hannah Schultz, and Lori Wachner. Theme music for Share Public Health is composed by Dave Hohen and Roger Heilman. Funding for this webinar is provided by the Health Resources and Services Administration. Please see the podcast notes for an evaluation and transcript.